Welcome to the Pop Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez with my co-host Brad Binkley and our very special guest today, Allison McDowell, whom I know you've heard of because I've talked about her so many times on the show ever since I saw her on the Higher Side Chats. She is a masterful researcher and is pulling back the curtains on the powers that be and what they're actually doing, kind of answering the question as who are they? What is their vision and how are they getting there? And this is something that I, any one of those questions, I, I think Allison's probably able to speak on for hours at a time. And her website has webinars that go for hours and they are worth listening to twice. So our hope today is to give you an overview of some of the things that she's discovered, see what directions she wants to point us in and then go uh, dig into her work. So Allison, without further ado, please say hello and tell us like where people can find you and um, just let's launch this. Okay, sure. So I'm, I'm based in Philadelphia. You know, I, I'm a mom, I'm an independent researcher, and I came into this stuff through uh, fighting privatization of public education. So that's sort of my background. I have a blog. I've been blogging for the past five years, about maybe not even quite five years. Um, it started out primarily around education issues and then morphed into technological surveillance and finance and now um, synthetic biology, cyborg capitalism, <laughs> evidently, is sort of where it's gone. And um, because I live in Philadelphia, there are a lot of things happening at a local level that tie into sort of these macro global trends. And so I have this interesting, my background is actually in art history and historic preservation and landscape. So I do a lot of primary research, but then I think I have a, a way of synthesizing things that um, is particularly appropriate to being on a very historic landscape with many layers of history that are intersecting up to these present day financial instruments and technological instruments. So I have my blog is called wrenchinthegears.com, wrench like the tool. Um, it's after David Fry Noble um, and uh, his brother Douglas, who were profound um, wrenches in, in the systems of higher education privatization. And um, I also have a YouTube channel, which if you just look up my name, Allison McDowell, A-L-I-S-O-N-M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L, -L, it should come up. Although my friend Jason at Argus Fest, he has a channel, which is wonderful. And he's helping me with my website. So we actually now on the website have a video uh, box with a lot of uh, talks there that, that are easily accessible. I want to talk about your last appearance on his show too, as one of the topics I want to hit or the uh, context for that. But what I just will say is that it's extremely unusual for someone to really have that big picture sense of things that you were um, an art major, art uh, have an art degree and can also really understand the nuances of these arcane financial instruments and their impact on culture with heart like you you know i'm i'm a hardcore libertarian like i i have a brain the heart gets a little atrophied there for me like i just and but i think that that what makes sense makes things better for people it's not that i'm cold but like you have a real sense of how some of these um, mechanisms that are in place are going to affect our children and our future in a way that will divorce us from our own natures and the nature around us. So that's interesting, your landscape, all that stuff, it makes sense when, when we listen to what you've come up with and how you analyze it. So, but I think we have to just tick off some of the basics here right. 
starting with, I think the big word, the big phrase that you use that I think it's really hard to get one's mind around is the social impact investing. What is that and why is it so important? Okay. So to, before I do the impact investing, I just want to say a, a sort of give the, the landscape, what is the backdrop of why impact investing is needed? And I think more and more over the past five or six months, people have kind of gotten their minds around this great reset, right? That there is a, a global reset happening around political economy, um, this fourth industrial revolution, which is being imagined by, you know, the billionaire class of the world. Um, and this health event has sort of triggered the ability to roll out many of these technological systems that will advance this you know, really seismic shift if they if they succeed. And I always uh, want to lay out that they have not succeeded in this yet. This is not a foregone conclusion. Um, these are there are many moving parts, and and I do feel very confident, especially coming from a place of like being a mom. And and you know, I always frame this to sort of a spirited engagement. You know, that we can come up against this. So I, some of the things I'm going to talk about will sound very dire, but I don't believe it's going to end up this way. And that's why people like me and and a growing number of people are putting it out there because I think if people knew what was coming you know, 99.8% of the world's population would reject it. Um, so this, this fourth industrial revolution is something that is built on massive automation of labor, robotics, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, this internet of things, which is essentially a cyber physical environment, a smart world where the world almost becomes like a video game, like an interactive video game. Um, but knowing that all of this technology is fundamentally militarized and the imperative of extracting value out of this environment essentially starts to erase natural life because synthetic biology is also a huge component. So as they are mining our beingness, as uh, John Trudell, who's an inspiration to me, he was a leader in the American Indian movement, and I highly recommend if people are not familiar his work, he talked about a predator energy, a predator energy that would mine the being part of human. And not just humans, all of natural life. So this fourth industrial revolution, um, the Great Reset, is the backdrop. They are trying to accomplish this. And it is a global scenario. So they need to get everyone on board. And that is why imposing a, a global biosecurity state is central to this entire enterprise. And it has to be built. It has to actually be coded into reality. And we're at this moment where it has not that has not been done. And there's been a lot of work done on that, but not all of it. So where does impact investing fit in? Um, Davos, which is you know a, a key node of this program, every January, you know the connected elite arrive in Davos, and then they they have a theme. And so um, you know the Great Reset, I believe, was this January's theme. The the one before that was stakeholder capitalism. So they're going to have this new version of capitalism that is the better kind, right? And that is going to be accountable to the world's community for solving poverty and addressing environmental devastation that has has transpired. Um, but all of it has to be data driven and all of it involves pretty much sticking a sensor on every single thing so they can track it like a global computer, which is sort of how they're imagining it. And so this is the new economic paradigm is that that um, life and social relations and our relation to nature become fi fully financialized. And if you understand that the last global economic catastrophe was around the housing market, that that 
that crash around housing and real estate happened because wealth was incredibly concentrated in a in small numbers of hands and they had to people couldn't consume enough to keep the economy going in the way that it needed to be going so they created these a game really of selling um you know mortgages and toxic mortgages to people that they knew would default but these very powerful interests and i frame this as a game because for any normal person it would not make sense because it is not kind and it's not a good way to be in the world but if you're some sort of crazy company with no heart, you just make up the rules of the game to keep the game going. And that's what they needed at that phase was to, to create these innovative debt instruments around the real estate market. And they played that game until it played out. And then, you know, a few people made a lot of money shorting that market. But these, these layers, these tranches of debt instruments tied to housing were packaged and essentially became part of a legalized gambling racket you know, of the most power, it is just straight up gambling. And unlike venture capital firms or things, which, you know, I, I certainly have issues with some of them, they're essentially investing in a company or a product. The hedge funds are just gambling. Okay. So now picture we're over 10 years down the line from the aftermath of that. What has happened? The wealth has become more and more concentrated. The problem hasn't gone away. It's gotten worse. The banks were all bailed out. Um, the regular people took the hit. Now we few, fewer people have stable jobs, stable work. They're in the gig economy, right? They're, they're in rental housing. Blackstone came in and scooped up all the private rentals, right? So people aren't owning, they're renting under these very tyrannical conditions, you know, in many respects. How are they, what is the next big thing they're gonna gamble on? What is bigger than the housing market? <laughs> Human beings. <laughs> Humans, yeah. So the next biggest humans and and nature. So it's these two parts, and they're the rules of the game are outlined according to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Which, unless you dig into the United Nations, like we're trained up, like you know, all the way along that they're the peacekeepers, right? You know, and UNICEF, and you take around your coin boxes at Halloween, and and. But what has happened, you know, and I think from the beginning, because the Rockefellers have been in with the United Nations, you know, since its inception, but more recently, they are essentially an extension, have become an extension of the World Economic Forum that runs Davos. That's the Klaus Schwab, the Great Reset. They are an extension. And so these 17 sustainable development goals, two thirds of them are about managing the poor. About one third of them are about managing. If you actually look at the 17, most of them are about managing poor people around their hunger, around their health, around their training, around justice, quote unquote, you know, air quotes on that, around, you know, poverty, opportunity gaps, gender. It's man, it is the elite of the world using a premise of pro social progressivism to manage the poor as a commodity. I find that that language is almost impossible to conquer when you're reading it. When you hear these guys, every, if you go and look at Rockefeller Foundation, the World Economic Forum or UN, the Sustainable Goals, it always opens in the first paragraph, like we care about equity, equality, the poor, people in the world who are forgotten. And in the beginning, I oh, until I heard you, I would always think, well, they're just wanting to do what they want and they're couching it in these terms because that will get people on board. But as I've listened to your stuff and pulled on some of the threads that you have dangled that I started to think it's not, it's not disconnected. It's not just as an excuse. It's, it's really kind of the opposite. They're saying they want to help them, but really I feel like it's almost this kind of digital <laughs> neo-colonialism yeah, totally. where they're actually the target 
Yes, they're the commodity. They care about them as data. And, and essentially what, what we are at at this, this brink of artificial intelligence and sensor networks and things they, they, they talk about web 3.0 and spatial computing, the, the way in which you interact, your identity becomes a digital identity. And that I believe is going to be tied to these biometric uh, passports that are tied to somebody's medical status, right? You will have a digital identity and all of this data will accrue to that identity in layers very granular to allow them to make very calculated risk profiles about you and about your um, self-improvement on these pathways that you will be placed on by either, it, in many cases, it, these programs were piloted through humanitarian aid and development aid, but now they're coming back into the global north and being inflicted on um, you know, the, the impoverished populations. And, and one of the things I wanna lay out within this context, because I know I'm a little bit outside the norm in terms of how I frame this, a lot of people who are in the resistance, you know, they, they frame it as patriotism or the constitution. And, you know, I'm in Philadelphia, right? I'm, we're the home of the constitution and the declaration of independence. And most people don't realize that we were the home of George Washington's house, the first president's house was here and he had slaves and our city, it was a, a city of free blacks. And he was writing like, how can I like rig the system to keep my slave, keep my property? Like I wanna be president, yeah, but I also don't wanna lose my property. And so- and He was a big land speculator too. Like exactly. he's, you know, so, lionized, but- But so there's this, this incomplete history that many people are operating from. And so if you understand that the economic premise of that point, that the protections that many of us rely on were always granted in an exceptional nature, right? For those, you know, the white community who was needed for the economic system, they were granted the privileges. If you were black or indigenous enslaved people, you did not have that access, right? And so my framing is that where we are in this moment of potentially a you know, a biosecurity global fascist police state isn't strictly an aberration, but more like a logical continuation of something that has never been rebalanced or made right or been addressed. And I'm not saying this from a, just I want woke credits or I want, you know, to be pat on the back for saying this, but I believe that this is a spiritual engagement. Like if we are going up against DARPA, Goldman Sachs, you know, the Saudi sovereign wealth fund, <laughs> you know, SoftBank, you know, robot police dogs, we actually have to be on the right side spiritually about this. And, and I'm saying all faiths, like, and I'm someone who doesn't have a specific organized practice, but like, we actually have to be right with each other and be honest. And so I'm here in Philadelphia saying, like, there's history people don't know, you need to be honest. So if we are looking at what the Agenda 21 smart city environment looks like, as human capital commodities tied to impact investings, um, where they're talking about people nares, where the billionaires will have portfolios of human capital, like literally straight up, that's what they're talking about. Um, where a lot of this is being layered in with bioinformatics and genomics, right? And they're saying that they're gonna frame it for our health, but really is managing people in, in a way that's deeply steeped in eugenics and like back to the Fabian society and these early sort of progressive elements that now are, you know, layered in with CRISPR, right? And nanorobotics. And we never got over either the eugenics or this other history that if we understand um, 
the reservation systems, right? The native boarding schools, the family separation, the cultural erasure, the disconnect off of people's people off their land, off their cultural practice, off their foodways, and the making of that illegal, and then dependence on the state, and then the obligations that the state made in terms of treaties or annuities, they just didn't do them, right? They broke their they broke the agreements. That is now all of us. And so that is sort of my what I'm bringing into this equation and not maybe not everyone will agree with me on that, but I think this is an important extra layer to understand the impact investing that these harms that were inflicted in targeted ways for economic purposes, for colonial purposes, um, for social control purposes are now wide open to the whole world. And if we are going to stand in this space of preserving natural life and justice, like we need to do it in a, in a holistic way. And everybody is vulnerable. See, when I listen to you, I think, well, I've heard, I, I saw your little thing on Kathy. Kathy get, <laughs> may not even be a human being, but she uh, monitors this girl who has a single mom and she has asthma. The mom smokes and she gets badges and that's how they get these perks, these social credits and everything. And every, all that stuff, like I thought to myself, and this is, this is how these silos kind of work. I thought, well, <clears throat> that's not my situation. My kids aren't really going to be vulnerable to that. I have one son who's in down, who has down syndrome, who's in public school, who does actually have, even in the volunteer stuff like that, he does his extracurriculars. There are badges, which I never really filled out. I just was like, I don't care about that, but I saw what you're talking about. <clears throat> and I thought, well, he's in that, that vulnerable group, but I wonder if my kids who go to a, my other kids who go to a private school and, you know, are, where is the dividing line where people are really need to be afraid? Is it simply that or need to be forewarned? Is it simply uh, that we need to have compassion for these vulnerable, vulnerable people and that group of targets is getting bigger? Or is basically anyone who isn't in the hyper elite a target? And is it through just simply going to public school or what is the mechanism? How does everybody get roped into that? Right. Well, so, um, you know, I'm a conduit for a lot of information. So I just want to say like the, the stuff that I'm synthesizing is from a lot of different people and different sources, which I'm very grateful for. And I think that like my framing is less about the expert and more as like collective knowledge building. So one of the things people shared with me, I was in touch with teachers in Tokyo. They were um, uh, at an international private school and they said, Allison, you need to read this moonshot paper. And I, like, I don't always make time to read all of the things, you know, it's you have to sift through. And so I'm like, okay, I'll make time to read the moonshot paper. And so the J Japan um, Science and Technology Agency has a program that is called it's the moonshot program. And they gather together in December of 2019. So right before, you know, a few months before pandemic was declared. And they have all of these concepts of where they believe society is going. And again, Japan is significant. They have very high advances in the use of social robotics, social robots. They have SoftBank, which is the world's um, largest innovation fund in AI and in robotics. And much of that money is coming from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. They have Nippon Telegraph and Telephone, NTT. And NTT is working very closely on 6G so we know 5G, 6G is going to be for robot to robot communication and digital twinning. And they have a whole papers on digital twinning. So it's nothing that you just want to fluff off and say, well, that's some crazy idea. I don't really believe we should worry about that. It's actually the, the power structure and the money structure is there if they can accomplish it. So goal one of the moonshot program is essentially a cyborg world where they say by 2050, we are projecting 
that you, and this will be wonderful, don't you know, that we will all be operating outside the limits of a physical mind and body in time and space. And it will be great. And then, you know, right? like, hey, you know, you can pop over as like a virtualized character oh, and work wow. in like Brazil for a few hours in the morning. And then you can meet up with your friends in Seattle for some coffee and then like go to bed in Tokyo. Like they're imagining this world where people are literally removed from their physical body. And in this moment, like people are being alienated from their physical body. That's largely. happening right now because of the COVID thing. Right. So people are af- almost afraid of having a body. So like you can see this narrative like maybe it wouldn't be so bad just to be a cartoon and it you know when I started this like a year ago I mean I was doing the finance I was doing poverty I was doing technology surveillance like I was not thinking about digital twins I was not thinking about nanorobotics and the internet of bio nano things and I was not imagining any of this but it's out there and it's and you know I encourage people and I would love for this not to not happen and to be wrong but these documents exist and this is this vision I think we need to take seriously so the United Nations also has a paper on globotics, G-L-O-B-O-G-L-O-B-O-T-I-C-S, globotics. And so they're imagining haptic controlled robots um, with this advanced manufacturing where people will put on a haptic suit and augmented reality headwear, and they will operate, they will do work in, in some distant location. And this was, you know, again, we've already seen this drones, underwater robots, Fukushima, like these remote robots, um, they're piloting ones in uh, Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, they're called Kiwi bots, and they're like little robotic coolers for fast casual dining, they have someone go and pick up all the dorm orders and put them in individual coolers. And they don't have AI. There are people, I believe it's in Bolivia, who are paid $2 an hour to remotely drive the cooler robots to the dorm rooms. And this is Kiwi bots. Okay. So they're getting oh, that is programs, right? Really and so crazy. my question is in if this is the world that they're imagining, because the school systems are meant to um, you know, put shape the human capital to the future that industry is imagining. So this is the future, right? Like people have a small footprint, they live in a box, they live through a haptic suit, they live as a cyborg or as a you know, a cartoon avatar in virtual reality. Um is that what we want? Because if that is the world, unless you are a millionaire, I think like 10 or hundred times over and you can own your own island and just not do that at all, you're either going to be trapped in it or administering it. And so, you know, I'm a middle-class person, you know, I'm, you know, I still, I have a house. We're pretty financially stable at this moment, although it's all on paper, right? If they all go to some crazy central bank digital currency, boop, they can just erase everybody's like money. I don't have a backyard full of gold. You know, I'm not that person. So, and again, I haven't quite figured out how you pay for your groceries and gold, you know? So like, what do you do? So even if you are not that person, there is going to be a managerial class running this and it's going to be small. So there's the billionaires, there's the robots, there's the managerial class, and then there's everybody else. And the everybody else I think is going to be, you know, easily 80 to 90% of the population if they succeed in what they're attempting. And do you want your kid to get the brass ring and their success means they get to make other people miserable? Like as a mom, that's what I'm like, what is my kid going to do that I'm going to feel good about? Because essentially what they're doing is this impact investing environment. They are repackaging life, people's life outcomes, framing people as debt burdens on society. 
And then saying that we can preemptively fix people's in their relation to a social issue, whether that's hunger, whether that's housing, whether that's addiction, judicial involvement, unemployment, mental health, all of these things, they will use your genomics, your zip code, your parents, your social networks to say, it may not have happened to you yet because you're only two years old, but we predict based on our deep amount of data and our longstanding accurate projections that you will be someone who will be um, depressed and unemployed for X amount of time. And so if we can, it's pre-crime really, it's pre-crime. So if we can fix yeah. you and it's a, a game, it's all a fake out, it's not real. But if so they, this, you know, this is the pay for success part, the cost right. offsets, the cost right. offsets in pay for success are things like we have a cost on if you are depressed and you don't work, there's an economic downside. But they're already doing this. Like yes. with schools, kindergartens, prisons, they're already saying, we have identified this risky person who is going to cost the welfare state and we will take less than that to make a better outcome for cheaper. Yes. And we will issue bonds to pay some public-private partnership or something like that. And then we will prove to you that we saved you money by writing a bunch of stuff down and telling you that would have been worse. Exactly. And so, I mean, and this is possible because what is coming is almost like a global open air digital prison with the satellite systems, with digital identities that are going to be assigned to people, with wearable technology, with you know, the, the trackers and the smart shirts and the smart shoes and the brainwave headbands, they can start to reform the prison industrial complex and use that as a cost offset to redirect their profit in new ways. So now maybe you have fewer guards because you're pushing people into alternative pathways, right? But you'll still criminalize poverty and you'll still manage people. They'll be managed by state systems of control, but they'll be managed through their, um, their behavioral health, their wellness behaviors, uh, their food that they eat. And all of that will be tied to digital data flows really in real time that will inform people's bets on if you're compliant or not to the program, to the pathway. You're put on a continuum of care pathway and instead of guards, you'll have educators and healthcare providers and social workers. And they will also all be on the leaderboard for how good of a social worker are you? What is your portfolio of clients and how well are they performing on the pathways? Everyone is incorporated into this game except the people who are betting on it in the back room. So who, yeah, who is profiting from it and do they know? So it sounds like, I mean, I guess it's a big enough market for, let's say, Goldman Sachs to have an entire financial division dedicated to something like this. But also those private service providers or whoever it is that gets that the revenue, they're going to have a, a stake in it. They're going to want to foster that. Also, classifying people as pathological is going to be incentivized. Exactly. So- so are people, I, I noticed you saw that 10 digital nations or the impact. Um, I went to a website that you recommended the impact, impact management, management yeah, project. project. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like there are people who know what's going on and they're talking about it and they're roping people in and maybe it's at the San Francisco government level or Goldman Sachs back rooms or the charter school thing. Like what, who, who, who's in on it and why <laughs> 
doesn't anybody, you know, why do people not really know. know about it? Why is it just me? Right? <laughs> yeah. Why is it just you? Like you're the only one. And then if you, anytime I click a link, I'm like, wow, right. It's right there. Like yeah. it's in Wikipedia, the 10 digital countries is in Wikipedia. I'm like, they don't even know. I bet the Estonians don't even about. know. I know. Well, I will say, I mean, there's a, a really, someone who did pioneering work in this, his name is, uh, is Dr. Justin Leroy. And so he has a, um, a lecture that he actually gave, I believe it was in 2016 or 17 at the Whitney Museum of Art. It was part of an exhibit around debt. And Cameron Rowland was an artist who purchased a share in what these are called social impact bonds. Or the first wave was called social impact bonds. I think they're too complicated to scale. So they're going to pivot. I think now that they pivoted to pay for success. And now I think the pivot is back to just something called a social bond. Um, they change up the words, but fundamentally it's about outcomes-based contracting through for governments, for, for privatized government services. So outcomes-based contracts, which sound good, unless it involves putting, um, you know, toddlers on surveillance play tables and smart shirts on, you know, returning citizens. But it sounds good, these outcomes-based contracts, but that that is what it is. So um, Cameron Rowland, who does a lot of art in around the carceral state and found objects, he had a really amazing exhibit actually at um, in Los Angeles at the Modern Art Museum in Los Angeles about sort of the slavery, the slave system. And um, he invited Justin Leroy to give a talk because what he did was he bought a share in a Ventura County social impact bond that involved moral recognition therapy for people who were in the prison system. And I think that that moral recognition therapy actually even has ties to Scientology or some stuff. It's really kind of crazy, all right? So, so there's a framed, you know, you can only get the terms of the bond if you buy in, right? Because it's their game. So now if you look like at the Ventura uh, social impact bond, uh, the Whitney Museum of Art is the investor because he used part of the money he was given to make art to buy that share. And so Justin, uh, Justin Leroy gave a very compelling lecture about social um, impact bonds and the afterlife of slavery and talking about um, the fact that in the maritime trade, which was again linked to double entry bookkeeping and accounting, and now the blockchain is going to be this new system of accounting in the spatial web that there were the insurance companies that they would insure shipments of all kinds of shipments, many of whom include an enslaved black people. And there was a situation that happened with the Zong. It was called the Zong massacre where um, people on this ship had been, who were enslaved, had been insured for uh, drowning or the ship sinking, um, but they hit the doldrums and everyone was um, dehydrating and dying and starving. And so in order to claim the insurance payment, which only fit certain parameters and not others, they started throwing live people overboard yeah. to get that. And then that sort of exploded into the public consciousness in Great Britain. And then it became impossible to ignore the brutality that was actually happening. And it really triggered um, the, the abolition movement in the UK. But this idea of slavery, um, and the blockchain and the accounting and the insurance company, this is actuarial, this is risk profiling. So many of the investors in this are also tied to the insurance companies like Prudential uh, Financial Services and these big risk prediction companies and even the healthcare insurers like Kaiser Permanente, these big pots of money are betting on your outcomes, right? But the crazy thing is when you're in an, a smart environment, when you're in an environment where everything is on an app everything is known, you're in the panopticon, someone is looking to short you too. And that's oh where the comes in, right? 
So maybe your debt burden of being someone who's trying to be in recovery and going to a job workforce training program where they want to send you to learn to code the digital prison and someone they're weighing the bets on if you make your bus or not. Right? Maybe that bus gets detoured off your block. Uh, some and people don't want you to make the bus. Right? Yeah. And and so these smart this interface once you start to add in AI and it gets away from people, like you are trying And you're, you're saying literally, like literally there are bonds that people could short. Yes. Because so they they're going to say- been, They have not been brought to right. scale. So Ronald Cohen, right. he was, he was a, he's a, came out of Harvard. He lives in the United Kingdom. Uh, London is the blockchain center. He's very central through social finance. He has social finance in the UK in the US and in Israel and perhaps to other places, but they're modeling for like 10 years, they've been modeling these deals, these outcome-based contracts. How can we make it work? Because if you imagine the big short with the mortgages, every um, you know asset-backed security was thousands, right? So they need this at scale. And that is the thing people need to understand with pay for success is that whatever the success is, it's going to be narrow. It's going to be something that can be counted as data. So it will be quantitative, not qualitative. It will be scalable at, you know, times millions of people, right? Millions of toddlers on surveillance play tables, millions of pre-diabetic people in smart shirts checking in at the park with their QR code app. It has to be. And then, then the deals themselves will never actually solve the problem meaningfully. They may create data on a dashboard. And this many of the dashboard systems, Salesforce, Microsoft, um, their social solutions is Microsoft and Social Suite is Salesforce. The cloud computing companies and the data dashboard companies are key players in all of this. In the cap- you might solve your problem on a data dashboard for six months, but it's not a long-term fix and they're disincentivized because if you actually solved poverty, you wouldn't, the game would stop. And they have to, in order to regularize or quantify all that stuff, they have to erase culture and like algorithmic things. So that has everything to make things digital and virtual and also regular. So all the rules are the same everywhere. You know, it's, you can't do it with the mom and pop coffee shop, but you could do it with Starbucks and Walmart and Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. So now that's why, and you can see the COVID stuff having destroyed anything that is unique or not able to facilitate those kind of surveillance rules and data collection happens to be those are the businesses that went out of business. It has to all be flat. It has to be flat and it's global. So it's, and, and this is, this is the other piece of this that is hard is that my position is they're coming after everyone and it's a cloud-based solution, right? So if they can pilot it in China or rural Brazil or you know Israel, and they they get it. They can upload that, and most of this is running again through the United Nations through UNICEF. It can be anywhere in a week. So we actually have to have this is beyond geopolitics, and I'm not saying that there are no that that is totally set aside because even in the back poker game, their people are jostling, right? They're jostling in that back, po- but we're not. We don't have privy privileged access to know what that game is that they're playing. It's their game, right? So if it's Michael Bloomberg, if it's Jack Ma, you know, if it's the Pope, you know, it's their game. And, and so we need to stand 
as a united earth, to me, it's like, I want a global peace movement of moms to stand for non-synthetic life because what happens to people like families having coming with home visits with tablets, monitoring your parenting with an iPad that's backed by UNICEF, that could be in LA next month. Well, that's so we why have, even my yeah, son who has Down syndrome. Yeah, I didn't even when they would come over and start doing that stuff, they would ask me, like, did you give him a massage or whatever? And I was like, what are you going to write that down? The kids like, a you know, a bag of sugar. I'm not giving him a massage. But so why? The, so you want people to band together and I'm completely with you, but it's very hard to communicate. And as the sensors are coming down and you turned us on to this concept of solutions journalism, which we right. never even heard of before, like how do we actually communicate? It's, it feels like we're being, they, what they actually called an event to a one, they're flooding the zone. We yeah. cannot get the word out. So, I mean, this is another thing that I've like learned this past year. So when I, when all of this happened, like I've been going around saying like, these things are coming right to the school people. And then to people who are working, you know, in, in impoverished communities and other, you know, other places trying to get the word out. And then, you know, then last March came and then I'm like, oh, this is the trigger. This is how this is all going to fold, unfold. And the people who appreciated the work that I had been doing were, were people, were alternative healers, like people of like holistic practice, um, people of faith and the artists. And those were the people who were like, we get you. Yes, that's it. Like from the beginning. And so like, and none of those were particularly my strong spaces. Like I'm an art historian, but I'm not necessarily a creator. I quote a little bit and I knit a little bit, but um, so I'm like, yeah, you know, okay. So I'm learning all these things. I'm learning about like energy fields. I'm learning about faith. I'm learning about, because if we're going from this big space, um, what can we lean on, right? We, we don't have directed energy weapons at our disposal, as far as I know, like we don't ha have control of the nanorobots and we don't have like uh, the bags of money, but we have our life force. And I think, and this is for me, people, like I did an interview with Tom Cowan, who's wonderful. And he's like, Allison, like I, I listened to you and I didn't really know all the stuff you were saying, but I believed it was true. Like I believed you were authentic. And so I think you have to know every single wrinkle of this plan to say, we stand for life. We stand for personal agency. We stand for um, caring, being in right relationship. And that is the indigenous practice way of reciprocity and being in right relationship to other people, other beings and other, not just people, but all of the world. And there is healing that has to be done. There's a tremendous amount, but it is not going to come from Goldman Sachs in, a, in, in smart sensor technology. That doesn't count. That is just a, that is a new oppressive tactic. And I think that message resonates with a lot of people and it unifies because in this moment, in the lead up, people have been polarized to point fingers at one another and not look to Davos, not look to Michael Bloomberg. I mean, Gates provides cover for many, many people, but there are a lot of operators and your enemy for the most part, I believe most people are good. And I'm trying to sort of like, fundamentally, I, I think agree, yeah. most people are good. I think people, if we knew that it's all of us, like, you know, I, while I, I appreciate people who are working on systems of mutual aid and permaculture and doing that work, and I think that's great, I don't think that you can fully run away from this. 
So there have to be at least two tracks, people developing those skills and then people refusing this program. It has to be a parallel program. And I think the people who are stepping out need to understand as they step out, it should like optimally not be simply, I wanna protect me and mine, but like, where do we stand for life, right? Like where, what is the new underground railroad? And to make sure that people, you know, I know many people who are suffering from like long-term chronic illness and who are, you know, I'm 50 years old. I don't know how super productive I can be in physical life, but if we are going to actually do this work of healing, we have to heal in a bigger way. And it can't be done from a selfish place. Even though our first instinct is that we wanna make sure that our, our people are okay. Like, and so I think we have to work from a generosity of spirit a little bit. And I think, but I think it could happen because this message is unifying. You don't have to talk about the health situation. You don't have to talk about things that get people pulled off of YouTube, right? If you go to like, I think that we should not move to cyborg avatar capitalism where we live as cartoon characters and we put sensors all over every Big living snaps. planet. <laughs> I don't think there's gonna be many people who say, bring it. You know, like I really don't. I did watch a TLC thing the other day of a guy who lives his life as a dog. So he might <laughs> in his giant dog costume be like, I want to live as an animated character or as a dog. But you got a lot of interesting stuff here. I, I want to ask you about the Solutions Journalism Network. But first, I, I want to you were talking about social impact investing. That sounds to me similar to what the ESG standards, yeah. the environmental society, uh, social oh, governance okay. standards that the Great Reset are trying to bring down on. Is that related? Yeah. It is, it's very much related. So the, the um, and this is something about Philadelphia. A lot of this came out of Philadelphia and Wharton Business School. And Judith Rodin was the former president of the University of Pennsylvania. And when she left, she became the head of the Rockefeller Foundation. Now it's, she's moved on since. But she created this global um, impact investment network. It's called GIIN. But it's interesting. It's like GIN, which also has its own sort of, um, you know, spectral element to it. Like they do a lot of wordplay. And then the rules for the impact are IRIS, I-R-I-S. And that's also like you think about the retinal scans tied to programmable currency and digital identity. And IRIS was like the, the messenger to the gods. And the, their symbol was the rainbow, which is the sustainable development goals are all the rainbow, right? So there are these layers of meaning. But the Global Impact Investment Network and the Rockefeller Foundation created this whole impact investing field, which overlays with ESG investing. And that is a huge part of it. And that is what the Impact Management Project, they're 2,000 of the world's largest asset holders, and they have to channel this global capital at scale. So they need the rules, they need the impact metrics, they need everybody on digital identity. That's why ID2020 is part of it too. And that's, I think, why we're seeing a lot of these major corporations do these virtue signal type marketing campaigns where the Gillette, for example, it's men usually buy Gillette. And then there was this commercial that was more of a toxic men type commercial that makes you say, that kind of seems to go against your shareholder capitalism, but it does meet the standard of stakeholder capitalism yeah. that is promoted by the World Economic Forum. And every time I look up one of these companies, when I see a commercial like that, every time they are on board they're at davos they're giving a speech at, at uh the world economic forum they're all yeah. intertwined yeah and it's very much it's both the environmental movement and, and cory morningstar and wrong kind of green they're very very good in that regard so they had the environmental piece i had more the the people and poverty piece coming together but and, and the thing is if you understand that what they most want is to fragment people turn people against one another 
um, and to make people depressed and shamed, right? And to not act, that those that fractiousness achieves that end, right? And yeah. it is in the coming together. And, and I will say over the past year, you know, I don't change how I talk to people depending on who I'm talking to. I always frame it the same way. And I have to say the people who, for whom the message resonates are the people that if I just listened to what I was supposed to listen to, I would think, oh, those people would not be receptive to my message. And that isn't the case. That isn't the case. So um, yeah, yeah. we need to act with generosity because honestly, if you're being honest, if you're being honest from a place of caring, it, it, it breaks through. Yeah, you lead with you lead with love. It disarms people, especially when they're expecting conflict. They don't know how to react. And oftentimes you get a genuine reaction out of that. I, I love it. Now, Solutions Journalism, the Solutions Journalism Network particularly, reminds me of I've been following First Draft News, which was created right after Trump announced that he was running. And First Draft News was behind some of the news literacy curriculum and a lot of the the propaganda that we've seen, especially targeting children. And I'm seeing when I'm looking at the Solutions Journalism Network, it seems similar to me. What role does it have to play in transforming society? Well, so, you know, we've always, I mean, you guys, the propaganda is your thing, right? So like, we've always clearly had this legacy in this history of both like, oh, like propaganda in many layers, right? There's, there's, you know, the, the, the journalism element, the mass media element, there's the subliminal element. There's like many ways in which they want people to go along. Otherwise, how would we just have these couple hundred billionaires, right? How would we all let that happen if we weren't somehow like entrained into this system? And so, and you know, it happens through the schools, it happens in many ways. Um, so this next version is within the impact investing space, they're actually using the media, not simply to condition people's minds to um, be compliant to the, the, the will to this agenda, but they're actually structuring markets in that for behavior change. So they're actually creating metrics in media consumption to say, um, how many clicks did we get? How many views? And even to the point of, did we change legislation? So I have a, a, a blog post called Shorting the Lives of Children, where there's a woman who was a former Harvard business professor who's now into documentary film production, where she's at Columbia Business School saying like, oh, by the way, we, we consider this, these documentary films tranches of investment, and we look to see what legislation that we want passed it will move. And even though we're not supposed to say that because that goes against IRS regulations, we do it anyway. And, and I mean, this is still sitting out on the Columbia Business School website. You know, she's pretty much just like thumbing her nose at the IRS saying that this is how the game is played. And so if they create an impact market in measurable behavior change, um, they can use these media to not only make you think the way they want you to think or attempt to, but they can make money off it if you hit the mark. And so increasingly, as we move to this cyber physical world and this virtualized world mixed reality or immersive reality, through the United Nations, they are very deeply into VR, um, like measurable behavior change in virtual reality. And there are biometric information that they can capture from your, your, your pulse, your, your eye movements, that they can make inferences. So they're talking about like putting people in VR headsets to feel like what's, what it's like to be a refugee, to be empathy, that they're gonna create yeah. impact markets mm -hmm. in empathy and then say, well, did you hit the target, right? It's like, did that VR program actually get your brain to where it needs to go? And increasingly, a yeah. lot of the stuff is tied in neurology. They're actually using digital media to create neural pathways, like literally to yeah. biologically create neural pathways 
where they want them. And false memories too. CNN has a VR. They've been testing it for a while now where they immerse you. If you want to go, like you said, find out what happened at a bombing in another country, they will immerse you in that environment. And they've done all these studies on it where it shows that after like six months, people who were in a virtual reality space versus people who were not, or the people that were in it, they could not distinguish what a real memory was from what was created in the virtual reality space. So by these news, they, they step into this virtuality news, it subverts the thinking, the critical thinking at all, and almost makes them feel as though they have lived this experience, which is completely controlled by the media. And the this Solutions Journalism Network, don't they train people? Aren't they training the yeah. next journalist? So, so it, it, it came out of the New York Times op-ed, like several people who were with the op-ed. So this is what's so hard is that like people are like, well, I don't listen to bloggers like because they're not legitimate. And I'm like, but the paper of record is part of essentially crafting this propaganda campaign to advance impact investing, right? And, they, and if you look on their funders page, it's all of the major foundations that are advancing the, this, these policies, not because they care about people, but because they need to create capital markets. It's market shaping. And so, um, yeah, they're not only doing it on their own papers, but they're in journalism schools and they're training the next generation of journalists in this way. And that's how they, they capture it. It's like they've captured the entire apparatus of, um, and, and, and I, you know, the thing is, it's not just mainstream media because Pierre Omidyar is a huge player in all of this. He's connected with the digital identity systems and impact investing in ed tech. And he has been dumping tons of money into alternative media, alternative. Wow. I mean, he owns The Intercept. They straight up own The Intercept, Omidyar, Pierre Omidyar. And, and he, his wife is doing uh, medical compliance apps that are being used to track women on Medicaid, pregnant women on Medicaid in South Carolina, Hope Lab, Pam Omidyar. So like if essentially you've got this guy who's in the impact space, who's owning the alt media as well. So again, you're always, there's always this question of like, who's gatekeeping and to what extent and what's going on. And, you know, it's, you know, I'm doing this. I don't take any money for this. Like I I'll, I'll travel on my own dime to, to, to because my goodness, I don't want to live in cyborg avatar capitalism as a cartoon character. Like we have <laughs> to mobilize people, but it's very difficult when even in the alt spaces, you know, why is no one else talking about this stuff I'm talking about? You know, maybe we're starting to get there. Raul Diego, he just put a really great piece for Mint Press called um, Silicon Icarus Bits and Bytes of Data Capitalism. But like there are very few journalists out there right now who are surfacing impact investing in the human capital bond market. The thing about the alternative media and other news organizations outside the mainstream, I've noticed that as well, where they seem to be trying to capture the local news organizations because they know people are more influenced by organizations close to them that feel familiar to them. And a lot of the funding, I've seen it come from Google and now Facebook is going to be paying in Australia, I believe it is, they're going to be paying for content from select news sources, which is going to make it harder for the true alternative media to get any attention anywhere. What What do you know about how all the solution journalism is connected to what Facebook is doing to try and control what we he see and hear on, on their platform? So I'm less, I'm, I'm less knowledgeable, honestly, about the Facebook stuff, but I, I, I can speak to just because I say I've been put in places to see things to tell people. Okay. Yeah. And so like about two years ago at Temple University, um, Annenberg School of Communications, which also I think they're at USC, I believe too, Annenberg School there, um, and Rutgers, 
um, they brought all of the nonprofit media together in a room to essentially get everybody on board. And I was organizing with Sherry Honkala, who's an amazing activist in um, housing rights. And she brought me along, right? So I got this, I got, you know, I just showed, but they had everyone in that room from the local Afrofuturist podcast up to the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is now housed within a foundation and is part of the Impact Solutions Journalism Program and wow. is pushing stuff around poverty management, okay? And so they got everybody and we had like some coffee and donuts and we were supposed to sit and sort of come up with you know a network program they wanted everybody on the same page well the annaberg school at, at, at penn like the next month was hosting a corporate conference which was three thousand dollars per person for like a half day conference which essentially promised them access to certain privileges and like c-suite access around things like uh blockchain blockchain payments and where the future of media was going okay and so there's these two contrasting things. One is the nonprofit media that is being managed and led at every level from very small independent sources, all of the, um, you know, the, the Latino paper, the African-American paper, everyone with the school paper, all of, the, all of the, the outlets were getting programmed and they actually had someone from Acevea who was doing predictive policing software. I was at a table where this young guy from Acevea who they have hunch lab said, well, we'd like to map your network. And I'm like, well, that sounds awful COINTELPRO-ish of you to like bring the predictive policing company. And they were doing open data for the city, which is part of the whole e-government digital nation stuff. You're sending the predictive policing people in to map the networks of the nonprofit news apparatus. That's kind of crazy. And then by the way, in the next month, you have a totally different frame presentation to the corporate media around the to token economics and the attention economy. And so I think that is in part why even in the alt media, there are these issues because there are many people who are still framing blockchain as liberation and Bitcoin and this gold rush around Bitcoin in the media space is this alt payment currency for alt media. And then if you are doing that, if that is your bread and butter, you are not going to be positioned to speak out against blockchain identity. I mean, you might, but most people aren't. It's kind of like hands linked. And if you don't talk about the blockchain identity and spatial reality and smart contracting, you've missed the boat. You've missed the whole thing. It, you've missed the prison planet that we're gonna be in the military hedge fund video game, right? And, and so if somehow we're not allowed to talk about that because people are getting payment in Bitcoin, well, then you have silenced off a lot of people. They proselytize yeah. Bitcoin. They prosel they have proselytizers, the people who are who, you know, mine it or are ahead of, you know, are invested in it just like regular people. And and as a libertarian, people always are like, well, this is a way around fiat money. And I thought, well, it's also a way to the cashless society yeah. that well, we otherwise wouldn't have gotten. So when they have nonprofits, it almost seems to me, I wonder if you can elucidate this. When there are nonprofits which sound like they're doing altruistic work, maybe that's just a way for foundations to then capture all that. And the foundations themselves also present themselves as doing altruistic work. But really, I think if you dig into the foundations and they dug into it in the 50s even and found that the foundations were really more ways of avoiding taxes, avoiding the rule against perpetuity, allowing these kind of intergenerational rules and goals that a regular individual could never like put in their will. I want this to happen for the next hundred years with my money. You're not allowed to do that, but a foundation could do it. And I think a corporation can do it too, but I'm just trying to put together the pieces of how it really 
it really feels like it's really couched in when you talk about nonprofit or about foundations or about poverty or about helping and all that. If it's hijacked totally by the impact stuff, by the data stuff, by the pre-crime, by the digital policing, it's really quite the opposite. And I, I just think it's, I, I wonder if the nonprofit and stuff, do they even realize that? And you're, when you were there, like, did people understand that they were selling out? I mean, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. I mean, I expect most people don't know the stuff I know, right? Like most people know a slice and to get up and get out of bed in the morning. And go, there are a lot of people who are miserable doing the work. Like there are a lot of miserable teachers because what, te what teaching has become is terrible. Like there are a lot of miserable social workers because social work, I mean, there are many people who are leaving their professions because the, the professions themselves have been turned into drudgery and they realize how oppressed that they are being used. So they're, they're, the, the emotional toll on themselves is a huge thing. So, um, you know, do they, they, they don't know how big it is. They don't know the hedge funds. Um, they, don't, they don't know about the spatial web. That's why I'm trying to tell people, you know, this is also woven into, you know, churches. So it's not just the foundations. Many of the faith institutions around the world are gonna be offering the social services, right? And the ones with the big endowments, they're going to probably be investing their church endowments or their synagogue endowments or their mosque endowments into these programs, right? Because they have to go somewhere. And so, you know, what I'm saying is, are we going to put children on blockchain? Are we going to track behaviors? Are, is doing that going to actually redistribute this obscene amount of wealth that is being held by a teeny tiny number of people? And then they're not only holding that wealth, but remaking the world virtually with sensors that are going to kill the planet, not only through the mining process, but also through the electricity and the water usage that are demanded to run the data centers, not to mention the child miners in Congo and, and you know, coups on other countries so we can get their lithium. You know, they, they, this does not have, they, they want to sort of advance technology as some clean process. It isn't. It's ugly. A lot of it is incredibly ugly. And so, you know, we just, I think we have to understand that until we find a way to, and I'm not saying like redistribute, like the guy who owns the corner store, right? Like there literally are these people that have all of the money and are killing us and the planet and actually funding things like life sciences companies that are invested in turning us through their products, their synthetic biology products into machines. And I, will we allow that? And I, I, I think we, we shouldn't, but we need to find a way to understand it together. And, and I know a lot of people sort of say, but Allison, you're always talking about the poor people, but I'm like, they know like the, the domestic poor, the global South, the people who've been living under the World Bank and the IMF structural adjustment program, they have deep knowledge about how to navigate these systems, right? Um, how to navigate them and not be erased out of it. And so like it behooves us, sometimes I think the smartest people, the most credentialed people are the ones who are the most difficult to actually convince what's happening because their whole identity is wrapped up in being the good person, right? And, and they, they, maybe they're in a lot of student loan debt to learn all the things they needed to know to jump through the hoops to be the good person to get the and when you try to say it's not what you were told right making poor people jump through hoops um isn't going to make you know make having jeff bezos offer uh montessori pre-k with surveillance play tables and smart shoes on kids isn't going to benefit those kids because jeff bezos is still making money off of them and is that fair <sighs> 
the the one thing that I I don't know if you I understand where you come from and I don't want you to have to go to a level that's speculative because you only really report what you've learned and witnessed and discovered. But I feel like some of these people, Pierre Omidyar, Jeff Bezos, some of those, uh, the young up and coming, like people who are worth $100 billion almost, are don't really get that position unless they are willing, because they all go in lockstep. Pierre Omidyar, Peter Thiel, like all these guys come out as if they're different. Elon Musk, like they paint them in these images. Their stories are kind of hard to believe, like how many people start in the garage and then testify before Congress one after another. You know, it's just, it's hard to believe. So I look at, I know you mentioned Sir Ronald Cohen, and I just, or we talk about Klaus Schwab a lot. I I wonder if if there's more to this power than just guys at Goldman looking for a new division, you know, a new outlet. It just it feels a little more coordinated, a little more intergenerational. Do you get a sense of that or do you just think it's purely just one step after another of of financial sophistication that just is inevitable because such as the habit of the, you know, the uh, greedy man. <laughs> well, there's a long history. I mean, like the idea of an industrially engineered society is a long time in coming. And that's another Philadelphia thing. So Friedrich Taylor of Taylorism, right? The scientific management of people on assembly lines. He, you know, he lived 15 minutes from my house. The work he did was in a, a steel factory uh, 15 minutes from where I live. So like, again, I'm on this like storied land. They've been trying to engineer people as machines for a very long time. And that evolved into technocracy and, and people like Patrick Wood are very good in that, in that area understanding, you know, that came out of Columbia uh, School of Industrial Engineering, which again, like Michael Crow at Arizona State and in QTEL is a huge part of all of this. He came out of Columbia. So there are the, these trajectories. Um, you know, Microsoft is talking about a planetary computer. You know, these ESG investors want to engineer life. Like they have a God complex. They, 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 and, and as much as they can use to extract value on the way down as they turn us into machines, they're going to both keep pulling money out. But I think the ultimate game is is that it is almost this predator energy system. I mean, and for me, that's why um, looking at, you know, I feel that John Trudell was sort of a prophetic voice for this moment. He, he passed in 2015, I believe, but he, if you don't have to point and say, it's this country, it's that country, it's these, it's this political ideology, it's that, if you say there is something out, profoundly out of balance in the world, right? The yin yang that I'm not saying there's never no, you know, darkness, but, in the sacred and profane, the profanity is way out of scale, right? And I believe that there is a greater force in the world. Like there, there are larger energetic forces. I don't think I would have seen all the things I would have seen or play, met the people I have met who have given me teachings, read, given the books that, have, that I've been able to weave together this narrative, understanding of what is happening and the ability to I think from a place of love, ask people to stand up and refuse it. If there wasn't something bigger than me going on, I don't think I'm just part of somebody's machine. I'm, there's something bigger. And if we understand that, we can rebalance. I, yeah, I believe. 
And I think actually you're demonstrating to me that asking the question I asked is a distraction because it's like I tell people, you don't have to believe that there are false flags trying to get you to consent to taking losing your rights as long as you defend your rights. You don't have to believe the story that there's somebody behind the curtain as long as you don't let the thing happen that you see happening that is bad. And I agree with you that the answer is to tap into that force, to convey it, to um, connect with people on that level. I think I mentioned to you in the email I sent you that I firmly believe we're in a post-ideological world where you're probably in, in the day would be called a liberal, I'm a libertarian. Those labels are 100% entirely existing now, I think, to exploit people, to corral people, to get people to think that that's still the game that's being played at the highest levels, when in fact, that is not even, a, nobody's at the highest levels trying to figure out the best system of government and fighting the fight. No, you know? no, no, not at all. And I don't know what comes next. I mean, I think, I think, you know, for me, I, I would just for your readers, another Robin Wall Kimmer is another amazing person that I read a lot. She's a citizen Potawatomi Nation. She's a professor of biology at the SUNY, SUNY Forestry School in upstate New York. And she speaks of like the reciprocity and the right relationship in our being part of a web of relations, that humans are the younger siblings and we bull around like we know what we're doing. And I think these crazy people who wanna map the microbiome and do use CRISPR and give us nutraceuticals and she, you know, no, we don't, we, we, we should be humble about the world because we are talking about introducing nanotechnology into the water cycle, things that we, it's Frankenstein-like, you know, what we're, and that we need to have a better relationship in the world to, 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 to heal. And then even, you know, I think the idea of animism and also ancestors, right? I have, I have a friend who, you know, he, he shared with me this idea, do we want to be an ancestor that would be worth claiming? You know, are our actions today, will, after we are passed, will someone say, that was my ancestor. I want to model my behavior on that person, right? Because there's more to us than just this body. I mean, I, I want to hold on to this body. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be, but there is more. There is more than that. And so if our actions in our moment are principled and we are willing to, to, to learn and continue to evolve, because I don't know all the things, I do the best I can with the knowledge I have. And then I keep trying to know more things right with other people and with the natural world and then we do, we try to do better um, and then you generously and courageously share what you've learned and how you've synthesized it with us and i just i, I feel very inspired by what you're saying i mean you're a wealth of information research and you wouldn't even have to bring it home like that to be well worth listening to, but that is very inspirational. And I think that's true. And I think the game is that you are, maybe the test that we're here to pass is how we resisted the temptation to vote for the lesser of two evils, to go along, to get along, like how we've resisted the temptation to think that this is it and just stand firm and to be judged in a broader 
you know, in the, in the fifth dimension or in intertemporally or whatever. So you have to have the strength to just continue to do what's right. And, and I agree with you about the agorism and stuff. I really feel like that's the right thing to do. I need to buy a chicken, whatever, but I do worry because it's not being suppressed so that, that maybe they are, they're counting on us the way they gave an asset to hippies. Like, you know what, we can get you to tune out if you kind of go it on your own in the outland. And that we, I think that, is an important part of it. I think we probably should have gold buried in the backyard, but I do also think that you're right. We have to, or I, I don't have words in your mouth, but I feel like there is also the obligation to kind of stay plugged in and defend the earth or your humanity or however you want to think about the, you know, the, the, um, essence of creation, but it's just, I, I love your stuff. And could you just remind us you're at wrenching the gears with a W yeah, wrenchinthegears.com and Allison McDowell. And um, yeah, we're the ember keepers. And not everybody has to do all the things. Know your gifts and how to give them. That's what Rob Amal Kimmer says. Know your gifts and how to give them. And I can, I, you know, I'm 50. I don't want to live in that cyborg world. If I were 30, I might be coming from a different place. I think it's important to try to not stand in judgment of other people's choices, but try to try to use your gifts to benefit humanity and the natural world, I think. And can we find a lot of these references and resources on your website? Do you, I mean, it's just you like know a, my friend, Jason, who is wonderful. He's helping yes. me get my website good. straightened out. So I, I should okay. have like recommended reading because there are. Yeah, some that things. would be great. And you're at Philly 182. Is that your Twitter handle? Yeah. At, uh, at Philly 852. At Philly 852. All right. I'll try not to include you in my tweets. I tweeted something about Milton Friedman. At you. Oh, no. That's okay. Like I feel like UBI, right? I'm so I don't get always get everything checked off, but this was a joke though. Like I always, um, I, there's this funny quote and it's just so nerdy that I think it's humorous that Ronald Coase, who's one economist says to an, like a journalist, which was just a ridiculous thing to say. He said, I don't know if you've ever had an argument with Milton Friedman, but I can tell you it's a rather strenuous affair. <laughs> so like, you know, my second or third time through one of your four hour webinars that I was going through to prepare for a one hour conversation. I was like, I don't know if you've ever had Alison McDowell on your show, <laughs> but the prep is a very strenuous affair. You don't always, not everybody has to do that much. No, we it's didn't have to do it. It's like no, no. parts and finish, you know, not everybody is up for it. <laughs> I was just, I'm just kind of kidding, but I just thought it was funny. So I, I threw that quote at you yesterday. And I was like, she's definitely not a Milton Friedman fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not either really, but just the quote was funny. And anyway, so it hasn't been strenuous. It has been absolute joy and you do all the work. So I was indulging myself with some of the webinars that I've been listening to making my dog walks a lot more fun fly by. And uh, so thank you so much for your time. Really, anytime you want to come, anything new you have to say, you want to get out into the world, we are happy to be your platform. We really appreciate your time. Yes, yeah, oh, well, it was a delight. Thank you. All right, cool. Thanks a lot.